sort of a 30,000 foot view of doubt and kind of went through the Old Testament and the New Testament and then we focused in on John the Baptist doubt as well. We watched a video on that. Uh, Dan did a class on the doctrine of hell, which is, you know, a a big source of doubt uh, and even deconversion for people. Um, And then last week we started kind of focusing more on deconstruction, or I I use the word apostasy, which is is maybe a better word for it. Um, And I started this, I called it a beginner's theology of apostasy. It's not by any means comprehensive, but I think hits on some of the major parts of what the Bible says about apostasy or deconversion. And by the way, the reason the room is set up like this is because there was an amazing uh, Christmas dinner last night here. Um, And so weren't able to fully um, put it back, put the room back, but this will work out just fine. So that's why the room is arranged a little differently. So thanks for your flexibility in that. All right, so today is kind of a wrap-up um, of this, this class. I'm going to finish um, talking about Hebrews 6. I kind of left a cliffhanger for you last week with that. I know some of you maybe lost some sleep over that, um, but uh, I will kind of wrap that up. And then share a few practical thoughts thoughts about how to walk with people through doubt or deconversion. And then if we have time, uh, which let's be honest, we're probably not going to have time um, if you've been in any of my classes, um, hopefully I'll be able to have some time to give a taste of one of my favorite resources that I've interacted with on these subjects. All right, so um, yeah, kind of... Slightly reviewing last week now, um, and then going into Hebrews 6. Last week, we kind of introduced this idea of the, the idea of apostasy, and uh, talked about a theology of apostasy, and the first thing I started with is the idea of the visible and invisible church. Um, and so that was, you know, we, just, we looked kind of at the Old and New Testament and how they both acknowledged the, the sad reality that just because you've confessed Christ with your mouth doesn't mean, or and, and you've also, you know, even been baptized and you're a part of the church and maybe very involved at the church, that doesn't necessarily mean that you've embraced Christ from your heart and are saved. And, you know, one, one passage that is a challenging passage that illustrates this is Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And we kind of illustrated this with um, you know, these two circles. So this kind of the, the outer circle was just the visible church, those who... Um, you know, have expressed a commitment to Christ who are involved in the church community. Um, but then the Bible kind of speaks to this reality of the, the invisible church within the church. Of course, God is the only one who knows who these people are. Um, I don't pretend or none of us would be able to pretend to be able to distinguish between the two. And, and, but um, there are ways in which we can, you know, have... Uh, at least some wisdom about what it means to be a true follower of Christ. The Bible does talk about that. Um, And that kind of leads then to needing to talk about this doctrine of the 
preservation of the saints. Though, though the threat of apostasy is very real, that doesn't mean that those who have embraced the covenant from the heart can't experience genuine assurance uh, of, of their faith. You know, the warning passages in the Bible, which we're exploring some uh, here, they, they keep the believer from, the ex- one, from two extremes. The Bible kind of shows us two extremes that believers can fall into, and one of them is presumption or complacency. And the warning passages, you know, encourage us as believers to continue working out our faith and continue growing in our faith. And we'll see a little bit later, uh, the warning passages are actually one of the ways that God preserves his saints through having passages in the Bible that really warn us about the reality and the the threat of apostasy. But the other extreme that we can fall into in that regard is despair uh, or discouragement or, you know, beginning to lose our assurance of our salvation. And so there's many Beautiful passages in the Bible like Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And later in Romans 8, the famous one, there's neither height or depth or angels or demons or anything that can separate us from the love of God. Uh, John 10.28 and 29 talks about Jesus and how strong of a shepherd is he is. It says, no one can snatch his sheep out of his hands. Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of the Lord Jesus. And so the, the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, um, it, it shows us that, you know, if someone apostatizes and leaves the faith, that, that they were never a true believer. Um, only time will tell if they were just a prodigal or an apostate, a prodigal who will, you know, hopefully come back or if a true apostate. Um, and we'll talk more about that as we continue. Um, and then we looked at the parable of the sower. It's probably better uh, described as the parable of the soils. It focuses on these four different soils and how to respond to Jesus. And if you remember, we looked at the context a little bit. Jesus had already been doing ministry, public ministry. He had been performing miracles. Some people had been very captured and captivated by Christ, but some um, had already uh, been opposing Christ. And you imagine the disciples were starting to get curious and maybe even discouraged. Why, are, why, aren't, why isn't more people following Christ? And the parable of so, the sower really helps explain that. Uh, this, this reality and the expectation that not everyone who um, is exposed to Christ will follow him. And we, we focused mostly last week on the second and third soils, which show the reality of apostasy. Um, you know, as I mentioned, the seed and those soils, it sprouts. It, it starts to grow. And, and that helps us see, like, for, for someone who leaves the faith, they can show, like I've already talked about, they can show genuine um, experience of salvation, experience of, of the Christian faith, but, um, you know, they never fully uh, blossom. Uh, the, the rocky ground or the thorny ground uh, chokes them out. They start to sprout up and have the stem, but not the full fruit, which is a perfect segue to Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, which we started talking about last week. Um, You know, if you remember the the audience of Hebrews, there was a real threat of apostasy amongst uh, the people that the author of Hebrews was writing to, especially people sliding back into Judaism and rejecting Christ. You could argue 
that one of the main purposes of the whole book um, and one of the main themes of the book is apostasy in Hebrews. Um, the book is kind of organized in such a way to show how Jesus is better, better than any other alternative, and how Jesus is supreme. And uh, in, in a way, it's the author trying to get his readers to um, commit even more deeply to Christ in, at the threat of apostasy. And um, our passage before us, Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, um, kind of comes at a moment in the book of Hebrews where the author has a little bit of a pause. He started talking about Melchizedek, um, and he's going to talk about how Jesus is the greatest high priest um, in the line of Melchizedek, but he has to take a pause and, and acknowledge that his readers um, are maybe not quite ready yet for this, this, the, the deeper doctrines that he gets into later in Hebrews. And he, he, he kind of pauses and, and, and shares with them um, how they have been kind of languishing in their faith. And um, he, I'll, I'll pull up here. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And at the end of chapter 5 as well, he's, he's kind of started talking about, you know, he's talking about leaving the elementary doctrines. That's not that we sh- those doctrines aren't important. It's just we need to build on them is really what he's getting at. And, and so he's, he's kind of talking about how they need to continue growing in their faith. And so he's, he's sort of taking this pause. And then that leads to verse 4 to 6, where he talks about where that complacency might lead them. It could lead them to this place. And so he warns them if they get to the place of leaving the faith. And that's where verses 4 to 6 come in. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So one thing I want that I pointed out last week was there is a change of in the grammatical person uh, in verse 4. It switches from first and second person to third person. And why is that significant, that it switches to third person? Um, it shows us that he's not accusing them that this is where they're at. He, he's talking more in a generality here that this could be what happens to them. And we talked about last week um, just some key points from this passage. Uh, I won't go into them as, in as much detail as we looked at them last week, but don't be surprised that the descriptions in this passage sound like a believer. That's the whole point. They seem to be believers, but turned out not to be. Um, there's a way to be a part of God's people only externally, this passage is showing. You, may, you can enjoy many of the privileges and not be saved. Keep in mind, um, the same situation was true for Israelites in the Exodus. Many were part of God's people externally, but never made it to the promised land. And people can have many spiritual privileges, but still fall away in unbelief, is what those... Um, 
verses are sharing. And so what are those privileges that this verse shares of being a part of the visible church? It talks about how they were once enlightened, which means they've received the knowledge of God's truth. It says they've tasted the heavenly gift. Um, that's probably best understood as they've experienced the blessings of being in God's community. It may refer to manna from heaven in um, the Old Testament or to the Lord's Supper. Um, they've shared in the Holy Spirit and the powers of the age to come. Uh, they've witnessed miraculous signs and wonders, uh, especially if they're in the age of the apostles where that was still going on. Um, remember, even Judas performed signs. Uh, if you look at, I forget the passage, but he was with the disciples when they all went out and they all performed signs. And, and Jesus says in Matthew 7, the passage I just read, even you can cast out demons in his name, and yet it, he never knew you. Um, and then, uh, tasted the goodness of the word of God. They sat under the teaching of the word. So the privilege, as I said last week, is piling up here. They, they have had so much exposure to the beauties of the gospel. And so thus, the responsibility is piling up. Um, and apostates are in kind of a different place than just your in, any unbeliever because there's plenty of people in the world who've never heard the gospel before, who've never heard a sermon, who've never been to church. And so um, it's not that they're off the hook, but it's just the, the responsibility of just how much they've been exposed to um, is, is part of what um, the author is trying to communicate here. So... Um, you know, going back then to the main argument of verses 4 and 5, it says, how did he start it? He said it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and then who've, who've had all these experiences and then have fallen away, verse 6, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And I'm sure many of you in this room right now could share a story of someone you know who left the faith and came back. What is this passage saying? Is it saying that actually that person can't come back once they've left? Um, that, this is a very um, challenging passage. And I'm going to hand the mic over for a couple minutes to Dr. Michael Kruger. He um, has done a lot of study uh, uh, and teaching on Hebrews. And Here's a segment of a lesson he gave on this passage where he, he talks about that language of impossible and um, how to understand it. So hopefully this works. You know, this person seemed like a believer. Look at point B. When they do fall away, our text says it's impossible to restore them again. This is sticky stuff. Look at verse 6. When they fall away, they cannot be restored again. It's impossible holding him up to contempt. There's a lot of debate about what this means. Is it really impossible for an apostate to come back again? Some commentators here will say, well, it's only impossible for men but not for God, or it's only impossible because they won't repent, and some of that might be the case. But there is a sense here in which many scholars, and I lean this way, think that it's genuinely impossible for a true apostate to come back. What do we mean by that? What I mean by that is there's certain kinds of rejection of God, a certain kind of apostasy, where God takes a person and, and gives them over to their sin. 
This is a very scary idea. This is what I said a couple weeks ago when these passages, these are tough passages. Romans 1 describes this. People are so bent on their sin, if you think back to Romans, that God will just give them over and say, okay, have your way. And God, in one sense, leaves them to themselves. By the way, there's no scarier place you could be than when God has given you over to yourself. People want to be sort of their own bosses, but that's the scariest thing when God just says, fine, have your way, and off they go in complete unbelief. So this is tricky. Here's the thing, though, is that when we see someone who seems to be leaving the covenant community, we don't always know that they're an apostate yet. And this is why I think there's always hope for, for anybody. Uh, I think some people end up having periods of their life of rebellion and resistance, that church discipline can bring them back in, and we hope that's the case. It's the person who perseveres in their apostasy that proves himself to be a true apostate. Some have suggested, therefore, that apostasy is the unpardonable sin. There's a whole conversation out there about the unpardonable sin I'm not going to open up. But there is such a thing, and this could be it, and many scholars think it is, that when you reject Christ so definitively like this, that God leaves you to yourself in judgment. Now, we're not going to try to resolve all that here in this particular time. The point, though, is that for apostates, they're basically crucifying Christ again. Did you notice that language? They're holding it up to contempt. Now, of course, they're not literally crucifying Christ again. Christ only died once. But they're doing the same thing to Jesus that the people who crucified did to Jesus, which is they're mocking him. They're, hum- they're trying to humiliate him. They're trying to, to reject him. Uh, that's what crucifixion was, by the way. Uh, crucifixion wasn't just about, let's find a way to torture people with the most pain we can think of, although it was really painful. Crucifixion ultimately was about uh, humiliation. It was about mocking. It was about ridicule. It was the way to string someone up and embarrass them in front of the whole world. If you've ever met a true apostate, that's exactly what they do to Christ. They absolutely mock, ridicule, and look to humiliate not only Jesus, but all his followers. Those are the kinds of people that God eventually gives over to their own devices. Now, flip your notes over. This is why, look at that line at the top, apostate. All right. Any thoughts or reactions to that clip? Yeah, David. What do y'all think? I mean, I that seems to be the the position he's taking is that you know he kind of distinguishes between a true apostate and and someone maybe going through a rebellious phase, and really time just telling whether that's the case. And so just, you don't just make the simple black and white statement of, okay, if, they've, if they're saying they're leaving the faith, that it's, it's over, that maybe having more nuance than that and recognizing that some can go through a phase and some eventually show themselves to be. Yeah. Any other yeah, I, thoughts or reactions? Absolutely. <clears throat> Any other comments? Yes. 
Yeah. No, that's that's very true for for many. Um, and it's yeah, it's, I'll share a little bit more about that when I talk about how to walk with someone through either doubt or apostasy, and all the challenges of that. Um. So. I wanted to also kind of give the rest of the context of this passage that I think helps um, us understand it well. Um, so immediately after this, it, start, it says, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop. Notice he's using the image of soil again. I, there seems to be a connection between the parable of the sower and this passage in Hebrews. The land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed. And its end um, is to be burned. And so the author in this section is describing believers and unbelievers. Those who have been exposed to God's word and the blessings of God, that's the rain, um, the rain has fallen on the whole field, uh, or both lands, um, and the, the reader is inviting us to um, identify those who have fallen away with the unfruitful land. Uh, there, there's thorns and thistles that grow up in this land, ultimately, that shows that they are unsaved, and, and notice he doesn't portray the fruitless land as having once borne fruit. Um, so it's not Christians who have lost their salvation, but people who were never saved. And so, and then uh, verse 9 is also very important. Notice um, he changes back to the second person. So he's been in talking to the third person, more in generalities, and now he's back to the second person. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And this is the only time in the book of Hebrews where he calls them beloved. Um, and so he's showing that he's confident that most of his readers um, are truly saved. He's not accusing them that they've fallen away. He's just warning them of the reality that it can happen. So if true believers can't fall away, then why would the author give the warning at all? Why would he give the warning at all? I think one of the things you have to say is the author himself, he doesn't know exactly who the true believers and not are. All right? So he's got to give this warning to all. As we've said, as I've hopefully made abundantly clear, the church consists of the visible and invisible church. There are people who are very much a part of the church who really don't believe and so, as Steve was even saying, too, we, we have to give this warning to all. Um, but also, as I said earlier, God uses warnings uh, in his Bible as a means to preserve his people. You know, there's, there's a lot of different ways that God um, preserves his people, keeps them in the faith. Um, and we, we could have a whole discussion about that, but one of them is by having warning passages in the Bible to hopefully stir our faith and to um, call us back. <clears throat> Any other questions about Hebrews 6? 4 to 6. 
All right. All right, so walking with friends or family through doubt or deconversion or deconstruction. So let's start with what not to do. Um, what not to do is um, nothing. That should be pretty obvious, but, you know, it's, it's something that we can be tempted. Why, why might we do nothing? It, it's uncomfortable. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. Um, but I think just doing nothing is, is, should not be um, an option. And I'll also say um, one thing not to do is just put a Band-Aid on one of these issues. I'm thinking about how sometimes our temptation, especially if someone is struggling with doubt, is just to, to give a quick intellectual answer. And that's not to say that we shouldn't engage very intellectually with our faith and wrestle with the evidences that we have, the uh, overwhelming evidences we have for the Bible and, and all those things. But we need to recognize that people's doubt or deconstruction journey um, is not always just intellectual. There's, there's multiple layers. Intellectual layer is one of the layers, but it's more than that. Um, it needs to be a more relational, conversational engagement with someone. Um, and I think sometimes we're tempted for it with good intentions to just, you know, send, send a book or, or, or a video and just watch that and kind of call it good. And, and again, there's a place for books and podcasts and stuff to, for people to listen to, but it needs to be in the context of a, a, of a conversation and a relationship, I think is best. So what to do? Um, I think this is, this is the biggest thing. Um, to pray. You know, I think of the, the parable of the lost sheep in Matthew 18. The parable of the lost sheep, when it occurs in Matthew, happens right before the passage on church discipline. And I think that's a significant thing, that the, the parable of the lost sheep happens right. I think that the parable of the lost sheep there is showing that um, what's in view is someone from the faith community who's running away. And while you know, Matthew 18 will go on to encourage the church, especially the leadership of the church, to run after those people. Um, Matthew 8, the, the parable of the lost sheep shows us that um, God is much more after those people than we are. And so prayer reminds our hearts that, um, you know, it's ultimately God who can bring people back or help people with their doubts. Um, and that's not to say we can't do anything and we just... That's all we do, but prayer, I think, is the most important thing we do. And I know many of you have stories of ways that God has used the prayers of the saints to work in the hearts of the doubting and the deconverting. And if you're given their ears, if, if you are able to have you know, a, a reasonable conversation with someone, um, there's also some things that we can think about. I would say normalize without fully condoning. All right, especially when it on the side of someone doubting. When I say normalize, I don't mean you encourage the doubt. I just mean you express, especially from the Bible, that as we've walked through the last several weeks, there is many examples of doubt in the Bible of, of some of the the best saints who who wrestled with these things, and you know, sharing uh, how much the Bible talks about this and even gives us language for this in the Psalms. Um, Share your own struggles with someone. You can, you know, share that 
you too have, have maybe had struggles with your Christian faith in various ways. And that can be very helpful. And then I think about our class, um, two classes ago, tactics that many of you um, in, interacted with um, by Greg Kokel. Um, you know, especially with someone who is deconverting, it, it can start to become more of an evangelis- evangelistic type relationship. Um, and, and so we, we talked a lot about that when we looked at tactics. And um, one of the things I love about Greg Kokel's approach is it's, it's not that Band-Aid approach that I mentioned earlier. It's a very relational approach to engaging people with the truths of Christianity. It's a very interactive and conversational um, and so listening is, is a huge part of this. Listening well to what someone is wrestling with or what they're struggling with, even under, trying to understand it better than they do. And then, of course, using questions. That's what Greg Kokel really hit upon. I think having the approach of even trying to ask more questions than we do make statements with people as they're wrestling with these things. Getting, getting the person to really um, talk through and process out loud you know, asking them questions like Kokel shared with us, like, what do you mean by that? Or how did you come to that conclusion? Um, and part of this can be, you know, that, like I said earlier, uh, sharing resources with them, things that have been helpful to you or, or good books or good talks and, and interacting about those things. Um, at times, you may need to call them to faith, to, to not live by sight, but to live by faith. That's not not blind faith, but it, at the end of the day, it is faith. Um, Hebrews 10 calls us as the church to stir one another up um, and to encourage one another. And part of that can be calling people to faith. Um, you know, I think you've got to be wise with how you do that. And the hard one, um, and Kruger was starting to get at this, but, but, but a very hard one is you may need to let them go. Now, this is not, this is after this is not like right away, but eventually you may need to let them go, as even uh, Kruger was, was hinting at from Romans 1 and, and things like that. You know, after you've really pursued someone and really tried to call them back to Christ, um, I think of the parable of the prodigal son. You know, at the end of the day, the father lets the son go. He lets him, um, you know, indulge in the things he's wanting to. I think of 1 Timothy 1, verses 19 to 20. Paul mentions uh, some people. Hymenaeus is one of them. I forget the other name, but he, he, he uses the language of he's handed them over to Satan. Now, commentators describe what Paul means there is basically they've been excommunicated from the church. Um, they were people who were spreading false teaching and they were confronted about it and didn't repent and they were um, excommunicated. But it's just this sense of there, there does come a point where, you know, Trying to pursue people over this um, just isn't really getting anywhere anymore. Um, it doesn't mean you don't love that person. It doesn't mean you, you know, cut them out of your life necessarily. Um, you definitely can still maintain a good friendship with them. Um, but you're just much more careful about how to talk about, um, you know, Christianity with them. And... Uh, one of the kind of subcategories of apostasy is, is prodigal children. That I know is something that many of you are, um, you know, have experienced in your own family, um, or you know people you love who have been prodigals. And um, 
So, you know, just a few words. I, this is probably not wise of me to, to stir up this nest because, there, I mean, it's, uh, it's a very challenging subject in itself. Um, but um, so with prodigals, a couple of biblical principles to keep in mind um, that, and to hold intention. Um, the, the Bible doesn't provide a formula for, for how to get a prodigal back, but it can explain how a prodigal turns out the way they do, and it also the Bible provides hope, as I've kind of shared, you know, the parable of the lost sheep, etc. But one of the things we have to acknowledge is that the Bible does teach that parents influence their children uh, to an extent. Train up a child in the way they should go, for when they get old, they will not depart from it. I mean, there is this expectation that they can influence them, but the Bible also teaches that parental influence is not determinative. Um, our, our children are exposed to other influences as well. Um, and our children make choices that we can't control. And they are responsible for the choices they make. And ultimately, we are dependent on God's sovereign grace for our children's salvation. And so these are just kind of some it's kind of a quick flyover of, of sort of some of the things, some of the biblical truths we need to hold in tension as we think about the painful reality of, of prodigals. And some, uh, some resources I recommend, um, if, if that's a subject that, that you want to learn more about or, or grow in, um, a couple books to recommend, Letting Go by Dave Harvey and Paul Gilbert, um, who've had a lot of pastoral experience and personal experience with, with prodigals. Come Back Barbara is written by Jack Miller and his daughter Barbara, who had run from the faith and then came back, and just that whole story. And then um, Out of a Far Country, um, it's, it's part story of Christopher Yuan and him going into um, homosexuality and then um, God rescuing him from that. Um, and, and bringing him into the faith and the church, but also the story of his mom and how she prayed for him. And it's just such a beautiful story of how his mom um, prayed for him and, and loved him through all of that. But I'll just pause for a minute. You know, I've just shared a lot of different thoughts, my thoughts on, on how to walk with someone through this. But I know many of you have experience with this yourselves. Would anyone want to add anything to what I, I said? about how to walk with someone through doubt or deconstruction? Yeah, Brian. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. 
That's a, such a good point, Brian. I appreciate you sharing that. That is, that is definitely a very important piece in this whole um, discussion of how to, how to move towards and walk with people in these places is definitely, um, if you didn't hear what Brian was saying, he, he was talking about how we need to, um, you know, one of the things is, is something that can lead someone into doubt or even deconversion is, is pain in their life, which is one of the videos talked about earlier and, and so part of our movement towards them should be giving them space to to process that and to lament it and to grieve it uh, but also to you know how to understand you know as best you can obviously biblically so so really focusing on some of the deeper emotional parts um, so yeah I appreciate you sharing that any other thoughts yeah Bruce Oh, that's great. If you didn't hear Bruce, he was just sharing that we need to find a way in our walking with people in doubt or just de deconversion is getting them interacting with Scripture as best we can um, and just releasing the power of Scripture in their lives. Um, absolutely. That's great. Yeah, Bob. Wow. No, that's a great point, Bob. If you didn't hear him, he, he was just 
re-emphasizing the point that though there is this sense in which we let them go, um, that doesn't mean we don't let go of the, the relationship entirely. Um, and there, there is, I think we should um, seek to stay in contact and obviously keep praying for them, but also trying to keep pursuing them in some way. So I, I agree. One last comment, question, or anything? So um, as expected, I didn't get to the last thing. I'll just recommend this. This is a podcast called Every Square Inch by a, a pastor in our denomination named Robert Cunningham. Uh, very, um, very uh, helpful, uh, stimulating podcast in general, but he did five um, Five, a five-part series responding to a specific story of deconstruction by um, two guys that they go by Rhett and Link. Some of the people in our church know them. They're from the Raleigh area. They're now um, in, in California. They're famous YouTubers, and they kind of publicly came out as leaving the faith a few years ago, and there's just been a whole swath of online conversation about that, And but I think Robert Cunningham's engagement with that story is, is really helpful. Um, and I was going to share one thing from it where he talks about, he, he talks about how basically Renton Link lost a sense of the truth, beauty, and goodness of Christ and Christianity. So he responds, he talks, he has a whole episode on truth and then beauty and, and goodness. And his episode on the beauty of Christ is unbelievable. I was going to walk us through the 10 things that make Christ so beautiful that he shares in that. But I just recommend those episodes to you. And then I'll fi- finish by giving a preview of the next uh, adult classes that are coming up. So we're off for two weeks. Next week's Christmas and then New Year's. So January 8th, we'll be back for adult class. Uh, up here in the 242 room, uh, the class for six weeks is going to be the New Testament canon. It's actually going to be taught, the, it's going to be a video series by Michael Kruger, who we just listened to earlier, um, who's the president of RTS Charlotte. He's done a lot of work on um, how we can trust uh, the Bible that we have in front of us and why, why we can trust that it's the Word of God and it's reliable. Um, he's done a lot of incredible work in that area, responding especially to people like Bart Ehrman. Um, and, and we thought that it could be a helpful sort of dovetail to a class on doubt and deconstruction to, to kind of anchor ourselves again on why we trust the Word of God. And then downstairs um, will be a class called Birds and Bees that's going to be interacting with uh, material uh, by two women who've done a lot of work on trying to help parents think through how to, how to talk about sex with their children. And the videos, uh, they're, they're shorter videos, so we'll show a few per class and then we'll have some discussion. Um, but uh, the, the videos are aimed more at parents of kids ages 1 through 10 um, and how to start those conversations at those ages in the home. But what they're going to say is relevant to any parent of any age, um, you know. So all are welcome to this class. I just wanted to let you know what the focus of that class will be. And we'll talk a little bit about even subjects like, you know, talking about transgenderism and same-sex attraction with kids and um, things like that. So I'm excited for that. I'll be leading that class downstairs in B11. So... Looking forward to, to those classes coming up in a couple weeks. Father, thanks for this chance to gather again. Pray that uh, as we uh, 
continue on in this Christmas season, that you would encourage our hearts with the gospel and uh, fill us with joy and hope um, at your coming and that you're at your coming again. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.